Hi there, I'm Amanda Stevens, and welcome to the Epic Podcast, where I explore the minds of some of the planet's most epic entrepreneurs, business leaders, and visionaries to unearth their incredible stories, their journey to success, how they do what they do, and most importantly, why. My hope is that you'll find some inspiration in each episode, some new ideas, or perhaps just a little motivation to build an epic business and life. Hey gang, I know this is a very big call, but today I think may possibly be the most epic episode yet. My guest today is an accountant, entrepreneur, business advisor, and investor. He advises some of the most respected sports and television stars in the country, and he himself has become a well-known and incredibly well-respected sportsman, having been the first, first-time skipper to win a Sydney to Hobart. Now, as someone who knows little about yacht racing, I found this interview absolutely riveting and incredibly inspiring. Anthony Bell is one of the most epic entrepreneurs I've met, and today he's going to unpack how he's built a multi-million dollar portfolio of businesses, and he shares refreshingly why having little or no super is probably nothing to worry about. And today, and for the next three episodes, we have something a little bit different and special. I've recruited an epic entrepreneur Tina Tower, to come and share some of her epic productivity hacks. This woman gets more shit done than anyone I know. So this is a very cool segment. Uh, It's a short one, but some really great tips and tricks on how to get more out of your day. So let's not take up any more time. Let's cue the epic music. Anthony Bell is an epic high performer. He's the founder and CEO of Australia's largest single partner accounting and advisory firm, Bell Partners. He's also widely known as the accountant to the stars, which is a term he doesn't really like, but he has it anyway. He advises some of the country's highest profile sports and media personalities, including Michael Clark and Larry Emder. But he's more than a celebrity accountant. Anthony is involved in a myriad of other business ventures, is an award-winning Sydney to Hobart captain, and the founder of the Loyal Foundation, which to date has raised over $6 million for life-saving equipment for hospitals across Australia. So not only is Anthony saving people tax, he's literally saving lives. Anthony, welcome to the Epic Podcast. Good morning, Mandy. So um, the first question I have for you is, what do you think is more stressful, a tax audit or skippering a Sydney to Hobart? Stress-wise, I'll take a tax audit every day of the week, Um, particularly uh, in those tough years going through Bass Strait, like amazing stories. And you train so hard for about three months before it just to get ready for it. And we had the added side of taking uh, a lot of amateurs well-known sports people or well-known entertainment guys to help raise money for the charity, which meant uh, lose one of those overboard and it's going to be a much bigger story than a, um, a salty skipper or a salty sailor that's been around forever. So, so the sailing wasn't the most <coughs> stressful part. It was who you actually had on board and, and who you were in charge of. <laughs> yeah, I can remember, you know, we've had so many great people come on board, you know, everyone from Kurt Fernley, Paralympian champion, to Michael Clark, uh, captain of the Australian cricket team. And I can still recall uh, in the early years, 2009, we... We just got the concept together and we just got a boat. And I can still remember, um, you know, sort of the guys were saying, hey, if something goes wrong and you jump overboard, 
um, and we've got to swim somewhere from Bass Strait to to uh, to Tasmania. Um, I can still remember the guy saying, "So, Carl, just jump a ride on Grand Hackett's back, and he'll swim us all the way there." And uh, I remember Hacky saying back to everyone. Uh, uh, no way. Um, he said, I'll be gone yeah, <laughs> and I'll yeah. be by myself. Each man for themselves. Um, so how did the Sydney to Hobart, how did the, the whole skippering of Sydney to Hobart come about? Because you were, I didn't realise until I researched this, but you were the first, first time skipper to win a Sydney to Hobart, which is just extraordinary. Yeah, so we um, we started the concept back in 2009 and, um, you know, right then I remember one of my great mates, Phil War. Um, you know, from Wallaby and, uh, you know, great fame of, of, of being one of the great uh, footballers for Australia. Um, he was just talking about how in 2003 he auctioned off one of his jerseys and it was a framed copy and it got $10,000 for it. And he said, and then uh, the next framed charity night that he went to, it got like $400. And he was saying that, you know, the concept of raising money for charity has changed so much in that last sort of six or seven year period. So a group of us said, look, let's be entrepreneurial. Let's Let's I mean, do something for charity. Uh, I came up with the concept initially. The boys all backed me. Um, so we, we started with like Danny Green on the boat, uh, Grand Hackers I mentioned before, Phil War, um, unbelievable guys. Larry Emder jumped on from Channel 7 uh, and uh, and we just kicked off and went. And I mean, our first year we raised about 700000 bucks for kids' medical equipment and that started the base. Um, uh, but we also want to be competitive as well. And so that was our, our first mission was to raise money for charity. Our second one, we knew that to be taken seriously, we had to race well. We had to be up the front of the fleet. Um, people or the society or the community had to give us a chance of actually winning. So we trained harder and we got the boat going faster. And then I took over as skipper in 2011 and uh, like your heart pounds out of your chest. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, sort of thing to take over, both in leadership, but also to in high performance. And uh, yeah, it was just like this great race. We, we, uh, our, our great arch rivals, Wild Oats, who were pretty much the Ferrari of world sailing. I mean, we've got to pay massive credit to them. Uh, we beat them by three minutes and eight seconds in that 2011 race, and uh, the party uh, seemed to go on for what seemed like six months afterwards. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming I don't know a lot about racing, but I'm assuming that when you fronted up to say you were going to skip a, you'd never done it before, and you were going to skip a Sydney to Hobart. People must have written you off and thought it's just a bit of a celebrity kind yeah. of stunt. And did did people take you seriously from a racing point of view? So, and I think I think that's a great question. Um, look, the the we were an aspirationally fueled charter, so I think on one part there was like a big group that were urging us into it to do well. On the other part, naturally, we had critics as well saying, you know, what about these guys? You know, they just jumped into sailing. Most people have a pedigree. Uh, this guy Bell, he's last seen windsurfing in Rose Bay. Um, and yeah, so I think that, like I said, it was a difficult thing because again, I like a business setup. The the biggest issue was is that you know the higher your dreams and the higher aspirations, uh, the less likely you are to succeed. And also to the the groundswell, particularly in such a public thing like the Rolex in the Hobart, is that you're open to criticism, you're open to people's query, you're open to you know sort of a, a large uh, magnifying glass, if you like, on your campaign. And yeah, we were pretty comfortable with that. Um, I think. It was such an underdog story when we when we got up and won in 2011, and it was uh, such a story that you know sort of immediately attracted a high degree of credibility. Mind that, you know, we we sort of worked our way up to it. Um, we we trained really hard, and um, we had some of the best people on the planet helping us. You know, we had a amazing tactician Michael Coxon, who's got a plethora of great senior Hobarts behind him and a lot of victories as well. Um, so we we sort of. Um, 
in a, in a sort of a business case analysis, we had to save where we could so we could spend where we needed to and get the right people on board. And um, we had a navigator called Stan Honey who took the job with us about six or seven days before the race. It's, um, we had about 20 grand left in our budget. It was enough to get him out here from Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, we need an X Factor. Um, <clears throat> we'd raced Wild Oats up in Hamilton Island in 2011 in the preceding part. I remember getting on, uh, flying up there to Hamo, and it was a 13-part miniseries. And I thought, we just have to win seven races just to get over the top of the guys. And the night before the last race, I remember thinking, we just have to win one race because <laughs> we <laughs> lost 13 and zero. Oh, um, wow. So that was in August, and that was a preset. So the boat was technically faster on all wind angles, and I knew we needed some sort of edge. And if I couldn't get more speed out of the boat, um, what I needed was a tactical edge. And that was a guy, I suggest, with the last bit of money that was in the bank account, we kicked a few stones around. I said, let's get that Stan Honey out. He's revered as one of the best. He flew out from America. Uh, and it was just, we were losing for about 94% of the race. So Wild Oats was in front of us for 94% of the race. And then I can still recall the moment he, he came on deck. They were heading into Tasman Light, which is at the back end of the race. You're sort of getting to Storm Bay and then across the door. And so it's only, you know, sort of about 40 or 50 miles to go. And uh, Stan, we were at that stage 30 miles behind. We went to turn where Wild Oats did and Stan came running on deck and he said, hold, <laughs> like that. And uh at the time, he said, let's go another three quarters of a mile to the left. And he said, we'll overtake them. There's a shift coming. And so we, we fundamentally uh, won the race right there. We, we uh, Tactically, we went and found wind that didn't exist. Wild Oats parked up right on the Tasman coach, which happens. And we literally went past them. They were doing three knots. We went past them probably about a mile to their left doing 24 knots. Wow. Uh, got our nose in front and then we just had to hold them out. We just had to hold them out. So every time they turned behind us to, to find something, we turned. So we did a thing called covering. Um, and then just coming down the door and I think everybody was, you know, white knuckles. The team had worked incredibly hard. It was a long race. It had all sorts of wind conditions in it. Um, and then we just had to keep the boat going. Uh, Oats threw everything at us in the door and there was a crowd, there was helicopters, no one could hear a thing. And then, uh, we went through the uh, the finish line, as I said, just about three minutes and eight seconds, which is very tight for, for three days in, in sailing. Uh, and, you know, it was just this most elating feeling, probably you know, one of the best things we've ever done as a group and as a team. And I think coming back to what you were saying before, that there were, we had a lot of critics going into the race. A lot of people said it was impossible for us to beat Wild Oats. I think the betting odds were about $1.50 to one for Wild Oats, and we were something like, you know, 14 to one as the, um, as, as the next boat. So, yeah, I think that... They just made for the elation and uh, and it got us going. Um, and we, we then sold the boat um, after the race and then we went into Loyal Mark II and did a whole new campaign with a brand new boat. Wow, it's extraordinary. I didn't know any of that story. So, that's <laughs> yeah. just, so what would you say you've learnt, you know, in all of the stuff that you've learnt about racing, which is at a pretty short time, and as you say, there are people... Um, who do Sydney to Hobarts, who've come from real racing pedigree. You're a, a kind of a newcomer, really, in mm. the scheme of things. What have you learnt in racing and strategy that you've been able to apply to business? Yeah, well, so it was probably, you know, the other way around, many, to be honest. It yeah. was what we learned in business we brought to racing. Yeah. Um, and so the first thing is you've got to start off with a plan um, and, and a pretty audacious sort of a goal. And ours was very simple. It was to win the Rolex Sydney Hobart. And then every single pillar, every single channel went down to just like a business case analysis. Said, okay, let's talk about our team. Who are the best people we can get? We haven't got a massive budget, so we've got to get the best we can with the budget that we've got, which then, like I said, discuss a whole new myriad of people who 
do more than they get paid for, who have talent beyond what other people have exercised for, who might have a, a an alignment to a cause of like building a big business rather than just simply wanting a paycheck sailor. So we, we went after those right sort of guys when we started talking about our human resource for the boat. We then needed the boat. Um, we looked at the boat and we said, we've got to have a really, really fast boat. We've got to be competitive. We've got to be able to take on Wild Oats or Alfa Romeo or all the big names. So we have to be 100 feet long. That was hard because, again, we had to, you know, sort of been working in reverse to say, if we're going to win the race, we've got to have all these things behind us. And, you know, finding the boat was really, really difficult. Um, that first loyal was actually sitting uh, on blocks over in Auckland. It was sitting on a farm uh, because the previous uh, builders of the boat couldn't afford to keep racing. Maxis are so expensive to race. Um, we then needed to be funded. And so my concept there was how, like, these things can sometimes chew your arm off cost-wise. So I said, we need to attract sponsors to us that will stop the, you know, sort of the rot of the cost of doing so we're able to be competitive. So we needed a point of difference. Ours was taking celebrities in the boat race. Ours was taking Danny Green, a, a world-time boxing hero, four-time world champion. It was taking Grant Hackett, a triple uh, gold medalist. It was taking Larry Emder who has no athletic uh, credential, but speaks to about 300,000 people every morning. So that was going to broaden the scope of it. Sailing's about 1% of the sporting community, but all these guys brought in millions. We bought Phil War and Phil Kearns from the Wallabies, who uh, that was sort of a period when the Wallabies were great. Um, don't want to talk about the other <laughs> Not night. today. <laughs> um, and so that brought interest in our, in our part. Again, it was all part of a, a strategic business plan to attract the amount of interest and revenue that we needed to actually high perform. So everything came down to that. When we made choices about a sale that we picked, we go, well, the other guys have uh, you know, got unlimited budgets to buy four or five sales. We just have to pick the one sale that's going to make a difference for us because we can't afford to do anything else. So Loyal was really like the Bell Partners business story all over again on water, um, you know, right down to that last bit then too, which you can't buy. And you can't read in a um, in a book, which is creating aspiration, you know, creating a feeling among a team where guys do more than they get paid for. They jump out of their skins to to self achieve, and they they feel like they're such a part of it that they actually want the boat to do well, not just for the owners or for the charity or for the sponsors. They want to do well for themselves. Mm. So the celebrity factor for the boat wasn't just a show pony strategy that a lot of people would have written it off as. It was actually very strategic to help attract the sponsorship that you needed to fund the high performance element of the race. Definitely. And then the other part too was I always had a theory, like I said, from I did do a bit of sailing before, you know, admittedly buying a maxi was uh, probably gone from, you know, sort of zero to, you know, from the, from the outhouse to the penthouse of world sailing. Um, but the, the part that I also had a theory on was those guys, Phil Kearns, Phil War, they were great athletes. Their footwork was unbelievable. They were strong as oxes. Now, they all had a job to do on the boat. And the job that they did was something that you'd otherwise have to pay professional sailors to come and do. But like I said, when you're carrying a 600 uh, kilo uh, A2, do you know what I mean, sort of up the boat and you need eight guys, if you've got three or four big, strong guys, they're going to do the same job as a pro sailor is going to do. They're probably going to do it even better. Mm. Um because those parts have to be done to make the boat go fast. The tactician calls for the sail. Uh, we call them the horses. They get down there. They're dragging it up all through the night and all through in tough weather. And you look at guys, like I said, particularly your, your Danny Green, your Phil War, your, your Phil Kearns. They had amazing footwork. They were superstars for the Wallabies. And if you talk to the pro sailors who we could afford to have on the boat, they said, wow, those guys were unbelievable. And their engines are big and they go all day and all night. And something that other pros probably didn't have that stigma that those guys had. So they kind of 
aspired the other guys to actually lift and it made this unbelievable team atmosphere. Mm, from an endurance point of view. So while we're on the subject of celebrities, you've, you're widely regarded as the accountant to the stars. Hate it. Mum <laughs> you doesn't, hate, you hate mum that doesn't even talk to me when she reads those things. <laughs> but, but you do manage the financial affairs of a lot of celebrities. Was that always your plan? How did that strategy evolve? No, it wasn't. It was actually quite funny. I, before sailing, I uh, played rugby union with what, what I think is one of the great clubs of the world called Randwick. And Randwick used to have all the Wallabies, so David Campisi, Phil Kearns. I used that name before, and I'll and I'll, I'll dial it back in here. Um, I was, um, I mean, I used to train hard and 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 work as very best I could, but I was never going to be a star like those guys. Um, but uh, eventually, we'd be at training, and those guys need their tax done, and they go, "Hey, uh, AB, can we um, can we talk to you after training? Um, I haven't done a tax return for three years, and." word is that you know a bit about tax and I go absolutely I'm right here for that so those guys actually became my first clients um and I think about I mean that, that celebrity sort of stuff yeah like I said I can't stand the notation but I suppose you accept it for all the good things that comes with it and so guys I feel Kearns uh, were my first clients and so what happens if you did a great job for for Kearnsy um, he would become an advocate. He'd go and tell the change rooms. Um, people would say, oh, wow, what's happening with your money? You seem to be doing well. He goes, oh, I use a guy called Anthony Bell. And then immediately you'd get 14 phone calls from the rest of the Wallaby members the next day saying, hey, Kernsey just recommended you. And this was a lot of our business growing. We had no money when we first started Bell Partners. I started it on a credit card in 1997. Uh, so we didn't have any money to spend on advertising or sponsoring golf days or or putting a, a bus sign on. So the only way we could really build the firm was based on an advocacy program, you know, making, as I said again, it's been used over and over again, raving fans of our clients who would distribute for us, um, who became our marketing machine. So, yeah, it's funny, like, even though our uh, today our, um, our sports and entertainment uh, part of the firm is probably about 3 or 4%, but it does get the notation because it's probably more interesting than dull, boring accountants, you know, working away on um, on business activity statements. So it has a bit of notoriety attached to it. Mm. Um, and it's funny, like I said, it just kept on working. We got a good rep. Uh, managers started to use us and refer us in. Um, and the the next part that came from that was, you know, sort of we crossed codes. You know, we ended up in the cricket. Michael Clark appointed us. And then again, Michael Clark did exactly what Phil Kearns did. He told the change rooms. Guys were saying, oh, wow, you know, how come you got a new car? And he'd say, oh, I, I use my numbers person uh, and refer them to the firm. And then suddenly, uh, within days, um, we'd have all these Australian cricketers. I mean, we're clients of the firm. And that was pretty much it. But you have to do great work for the first advocates and the second advocates and the third ones. Um, you can't just sort of rest on your laurels and say, you're going to do a great job for Michael Clark because the expectation's already high for the next person who comes. Um, if it was a Phil Hughes or a Dave Warner or Mitchell Stark or whoever jumped on board at the back end of Clarkie's referral, then they had high expectations and you had to meet them um, for two reasons. One, you wanted to hold and retain a client. The second one, you want those guys to do exactly the same thing that Michael Clark had done go and tell the change rooms, go and tell the people. Accounting bashing in Australia is one of the great pastimes. And my accountant charges a fortune, I pay too much tax. All we needed to grow the firm was one of our advocates in that conversation, at that barbecue, at that social event, and said, I don't have that problem with my accountants. And um, the, the automatic question is, tell me their name. And that's how we grew the firm. Mm, and I'm assuming that in the last just over 20 years now that you've had um, Bell Partners, that you've had some real growth spurts as a result of some of those, that momentum and that 
um, advocacy that sort of takes on a life of its own. How have you managed that those growth spurts? Because that creates whole new challenges, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, you're right. And, and and you've got to take them where they're on. Yeah, I mean, there was times I can remember my my biggest uh, mentor was my mum, uh, God bless her. And she, I go, most weeks I go and see mum. It used to be a Saturday morning with mum and she'd go, how are you? I go, oh my God, I'm so busy. And I can remember my old girl saying, where's the effect of, well, would you rather the opposite, not being busy? And I go, no, I wouldn't actually. And she'd say, then great, then just rise to it because um, when you've got a chance to make the hay, you've got to actually be available to do it. You, this is the time to actually build a firm, um, work back till 11 o'clock or one in the morning or two in the morning just to maintain those standards. Um, uh, and so we always took that view that you know the, the dedication to your client base wasn't so much just to the person who needed your help, it was also to the referrer who didn't want to take a call from somebody who uh, they referred work to us for, where we they said, oh, they actually didn't stick up for me. They didn't, didn't you know, they were late calling back. They weren't engaged. Uh, so we have to make sure that we took care of not just the new person that was in front of us, but also to the person who referred them. Um, otherwise, they'd stop referring work. It's a really simple logic. And there was also to a part about loving the job. And I, you know, sort of, you know, God, it's been written in so many books, do what you love and you'll never work a day again. But it actually is true for us. Um, it's true for me, definitely. And it's actually true for, for the guys that have been at the firm. You know, I've got my PA, uh, Jacqueline Ford. She's been with us for 22 years. She was there on day one uh, in uh, 97 when we started Bell Partners and she's still there now. And it becomes infectious. You know, a, a great company will never outpace its leader. So you've got to continue to challenge and reward all the way through. Um, but the idea is if you really want to train well and, and keep a high degree of stability, you've got to inspire constantly. Otherwise, that great talent will look for it somewhere else. Mm, so you've obviously fostered an incredible culture. Um, your retention rate is extraordinary, even for your industry. What yeah. could you share around, apart from inspiring and constantly inspiring your team, what could you share around crafting really solid culture. Yeah. Okay. So I generally try and start with a finding process. You know, um, I love people who've got Maccas on their resume. Um, you know, most people say, oh, why would you hire someone from McDonald's? Do you know what I mean? That wore a brown pinstripe suit. I go, because they taught 16 year olds how to clean up their room when their parents couldn't do it. They had systems, they had processes. So I genuinely look at the recruitment edge for not the world's highest likelihood of success. I look for somebody who's got it in them, you know, who showed some sort of cause or some commitment when they were growing up to a work ethic. Um, I'm interested in what their parents did because that also too leads to cultural set. So you want to start well. You want to start, you know what I mean, with somebody to craft and mould into that career. Then we got them in. The thing is, is that the workflow must be interesting. So I've always believed really in young people, Amanda. I, you know, it used to bother me too when I was younger before, um, you know, sort of in our industry particularly, there used to be a thing called a night survey. And the night survey would say, you can um, be 24 years old, a chartered accountant, and this will be your salary band. And it stopped somewhere between, I'm showing my age here, but it stopped somewhere between $29,000 a year and $37,000 a year. Um, my view was, wow, what if you're 24 years old and you're absolutely hitting the ball out of the park and there's customers and clients coming to this person outside of those bands and they're actually doing things that 35-year-olds aren't doing in the firm. Um, get out of that model of just absolute standardization and reward that 24-year-old and continue um, to encourage them to keep on doing what they're doing. So. Uh, it wasn't uncommon in our firm that we'd have really young managers and sometimes they'd be leading people that were actually older than them and more experienced. It was a bit of a thing, you know, probably from the sporting background, it said the best players will play. And what that did is it did two things. It actually 
it encouraged the young guys to actually go, wow, I'm going to be rewarded here and I'm going to do more than I get paid for. And my office will actually uh, give me the chance to actually get going in my life faster than the night survey says. But the second thing it did, it kept everyone else on their toes. It kept 30-year-olds a chance to go, wow, I mean, I don't want to be left in the dark here. I'm going to have to work a little bit harder as well. So to retain those sorts of guys, the challenges just need to keep on coming to them. The rewards need to keep on coming to them. Effectively, you watch closely at the psychology of each individual and you're working out when they're at year two with you, to year four with you, to year six, what works for them. And you've just got to keep that coming to them. To get 10 years, you've really got to work on them and they're one year or two year. Um, you know, I think of Harry Edwards, our managing director of the Norwest, which one of our fastest growing precincts in the, um, in the office uh, structure now. Now, he came to me when he was 20 years old. Uh, he was a graduate. He was a university medalist. He was captain of his school. He was captain of everything. He was like a born leader, this kid. And he said to me, I just want to let you know, I'm only staying for two years. Uh, I'm going to do mandatory two years in accounting, and then my plan is to become an investment banker, stockbroker, or something like that. Now, that was a conversation was had 17 years ago. Hmm. Um, so I looked at him and said, wow, if I can just, I see what you want. You want high performance. You want to lead. You want exhilaration at work. You obviously want monetary returns. You want uh, to create a bit of life for yourself. Then the question then came on to us at Bell Partners to say, how do we govern and give you your opportunity? How do we see you as talent that invests in us rather than simply we owning your talent for that two years that you're on? Mm. But each person's a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. And you have expanded Bell Partners beyond accounting. You now have legal services, um, finance, and you're involved in a whole myriad of businesses, which we'll get to in a moment. But the expansion of the Bell Partners brand, how did that come about? And also, um, how have you overcome the risk of spreading the brand too thin? Yeah, so my old man and I used to to argue about it. I used to, Dad was a great accountant. Started with Dad in the late 80s. um, And by... 1995, I was sort of dad's practice manager and we'd sort of started the turnaround. I was going to dad saying, hey, we need to actually go into different directions here. We, we need to n- just not be recording history as accountants. We need to start making history. Now, my old man was a product of the 60s and he was a great auditor and a, and a bloody good accountant. And dad used to say, no, that's for the consultants. And I said, yeah, dad, people are going to want to be more in business advisory. They're going to want to know, you know what to do with their money. Uh, and Dad and I were, were non-alignment about that. And so we got to about the mid-90s, and Dad offered me a junior partnership in um, in what was then called Donald F. Bell & Co. We had about six or seven staff, and, you know, it was a good firm. It was one of the big 6,000. And um, we were we were just, I mean, sort of starting to, to get into the more modern world. And uh, But Dad and I were clearly in disalignment. He offered me a junior partnership, and... You might recall back then what had happened is dads would start a firm, their sons would come in and they'd be junior partners, then their dad would eventually die or retire and they'd become a senior partner and their sons would come through, but the days were changing. And I wanted to do it by myself. I I had a different view to what dad did and I wanted to get going faster. So um, I took some time to think, went to the old man and said, look, mate, (laughs) I love working here, but I want to go alone. I actually want to go and start my own firm. I'm indifferent to you. And it was... I probably didn't realise how uh, disappointing that was um, to uh, that day for, for a person generated out of the 60s or 70s where the pathway, you know what I mean, was, oh, well, I've got a son, he'll take over the practice. It was just assumed that that's what would happen. And yeah. so he was obviously, it was probably hurtful for him. There were so many firms, Amanda, going around then that were, you know, sort of John Smith and son. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was lots of those. So it was hurtful. I think it was, um, 
And so dad and I, you know, it, it didn't suit him. Um, and then, you know, so I was pretty headstrong back then and I just wanted to go. And I, the more dad and I were arguing, the more I thought my pathway was the right one to, to start up my own show. And dad said to me, he said, you're too young. You'll have no clients. The banks won't back you, that's for sure. You're still living at home with your mother. Um, so, uh, you know, all those things. And they were all true. Um, and then it was really difficult for the next couple of years. All the things Dad said were going to be true. Uh, but we just had to hang in there on a belief. As I said, I have my PA. Um, by that stage, we had a couple of other guys working, but we weren't going anywhere. The banks, were, what Dad said was true. I couldn't get an overdraft. There was times when I used to say to Mum, I know I've said this to you before, that we're going to go broke this month, but this month I think it's actually going to happen. Like That was like 1999. Um, mm. And then you just have a couple of those moments where you stick in, you might just pull a a great job or a client or something like that and it just then reminds you that the endurance that was needed to just stick in there was actually worth doing uh so yeah with that it was uh like i said a really really tough period then dad finally we survived i remember him saying uh he and i were basically working in competition with each other and dad i just got up said let's have lunch he said i've come up with an idea um and uh i said great he said he said um I'm going to fold my firm into yours. You want to run your own show. I'll be a consultant, um, which I worked out meant to come and go as you please and have no responsibilities whatsoever. <laughs> to basically be your dad. <laughs> yeah. and um, But it gave us a bit of grey hair. Uh, dad folded his Donald F. Bell & Co. firm into ours. He tucked it into it. Um, we had a consultancy agreement that worked, and Dad and I became, yeah, it was the perfect working relationship for pretty much the next 17 years until he passed away. Right. And it was, a, and it was just great. Um, and that's, again, too, you know, there's so many opportunities to get the structure right, you know what I mean, sort of to negotiate around it and to find that sweet spot. And while I knew where I wanted to go and Dad didn't want me to go there, eventually only a couple of years later we were able to find that sweet spot working relationship and he was a great help to us the young staff particularly loved him dad had come in he'd tell war stories you know and the guys would be a spy but wow how'd you do that against the tax office in 1971 or whatever and it was a great combination as i said back then i was sort of inside my 30 30th birthday so it was kind of i needed probably a little bit of gray hair and dad gave that to us and did it heal that disappointment yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was funny because, uh, like I said, I remember the, the deal that we did um, for Dad to come in, the tuck-in, as I said, for him to merge his firm in. It's still, I'd say, the worst negotiation I've ever done in my whole life. <laughs> um, the old man just gave me a complete lesson, do you know what I mean, in sort of in how it's done. So I think the high victory that Dad had was, a, even though he folded in and tucked into a thing called Bell Partners, yeah. I think to his mates around having a beer, he was going, I <laughs> absolutely of, hammered him. Bit of a Trojan horse, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, he did well on that one. And and, um, and uh, but it ended up being, as I said, you know, sort of the worst negotiation I ever did ended up being one of the best deals of my life because we made it work. This episode of the Epic Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Storage King. When you're building an epic business in life, sometimes you have to store some excess stuff. It could be furniture, retail stock, or even somewhere to house the epic ideas that you're going to have after listening to this show. If that's you, speak to the awesome kings and queens at Storage King. In fact, they have a special introductory offer for epic podcast listeners to get you started. Simply head over to storageking.com.au slash epic to learn all about it. And so apart from those challenges in the early days where you did very nearly go broke several times, what have been some of the other 
crossroad moments or really sticky points in the business journey since then? Yeah, I think so. The biggest issue is too, it's, it's funny, we're called Bell Partners, but there's actually no partners. Um, and so um, the, the branding, the messaging was all about people wanting to work in a firm and feeling like they were part of the partnership. And a lot of it does come to your self-esteem. A lot of it does come to going, yeah, I'm a leader here. I remember working for Dad. I used to hate it. People said, where do you work? I said, I work at a firm called Donald F. Bell and Co. And you just feel like such a loser when you said it, you know. <laughs> um, so the term Bell Partners meant that, you know, somebody who, one of my seniors who was walking to a meeting could say, I'm, I'm from Bell Partners. I go, oh, this guy's really impressive. He must be one of the partners. But the issue with a lot of partnerships and why I was against it and I wanted a sole director, sole shareholder model is there was very hard to find in the accounting profession a lot of like-minded thinking people. There was always a natural leader in every partnership. But the problem is in those partnerships, they'd eventually disband because you get four or five partners, inevitably there'd be a rainmaker which I mean, amongst them, and he'd be bringing in tons of revenue and killing it, but he's splitting his partnership distribution six ways. And that guy would start to go, you know, I don't know why I'm carrying the audit partner for argument's sake, or I'm carrying the insolvency partner. They've done nothing for six months, yet I'm killing it. And that was always going to be a place that, that you know, I mean, sort of ends up meaning that most partnerships eventually fail, um, particularly in the small business side, or, the, or they come apart. Uh, so for me, I sort of had a very strong idea of what I wanted to do, and I didn't want to have to get approval to do it, you know what I mean, sort of amongst other partners. But then on the flip side is you've got to remember that how partnerships are formed is usually when there's a superstar in there and he or she is thinking of leaving the firm or, or going on their own separate way. And then the other guys in there say, don't let them go, let's make them a partner, you know? Mm. And so that's how, do you know what I mean? So they get into so, a retention strategy usually. Yeah, yeah massive yep. retention strategy. And so I then had to look at that and go, wow, what am I going to do with my guys? I've, I've also got people that are partnership material, if you like. I want to keep them. I don't want them to go and start up for themselves. Um, so I started a corporate model, which guys are almost running a business within the business. So some of my heads come to work and despite the fact they work for a place called Bell Partners, in their brain they actually think they're working for themselves. Um, they pick their own staff. They they manage their own client base. They um, get rewarded based on uh, a, a really simple mathematical equation that says, hey, the more you do, the more you make. So in their mind, they're going, hey, I'm coming. To, I'm, I work at this great firm. I've got resources everywhere. I can sit down and cross-reference with other guys. But effectively, I'm running my own show here. Without and the risk. Without the risk, yeah. right? You know, one partner trips over and he drags the other hundred down with them. Um, whereas these guys have got no risk whatsoever. But they act for my brand and they treat my brand almost it is their, like it is their brand. And that makes me more comfortable as well. So again, if you've got that superstar rock star operator and they have a great year and the rest of the firm doesn't have as good a year, they still earn what they you know, deserve to have because they're not dragged down I mean, by other groups there. And that's, I think, the model that's always worked for us. Mm. So beyond uh, beyond insurance and finance, how where is the expansion plan for Bell Partners now and is there sort of any limit to how you might um, expand the brand? Yeah, so the new black is the currency of time. I mean, that's the place where where most other business operators want back in their day. They don't want to go to see their accountant to get their tax done, then have to walk two blocks around to see a lawyer to actually take their legals, then they have to go and find their insurance person, then after that they have to get their mortgage done. Um, so we looked at the currency of time and said, how do we do that stuff under one roof? How do we get a universe together of parties that, for argument's sake, um, have needs, general and specific, and actually give them all that under one roof. We don't ram it down their throats, but it's available to them. To be good, to back up the rest of it, we had to be the best in the planet at what we did. If we saw our accountancy business as being the best uh, in the business in terms of what our competitive offering was, 
then if we open up a world practice, it had to be the best as well too. We had to get the best people. We had to start again with the best concepts, the best needs analysis, the best information systems, the best IT, the best partnerships uh, in wealth. That's a really tricky space. So we did that in 2002. Got a great leader who was operating already in the space, brought him into the Bell Partners brand, and then grew that as the first limb. And then what happened was people were saying, great, I'm glad to get my accountancy done now. I'm making the money, and you guys are showing me how to invest some money. Um, then how we decide what's next is really driven by our customers and clients. So back then, you know, mid-2000s and, and, and items like that, people were ringing up saying, hey, you know what, I need a mortgage advice. I, you know, I Aussie Home Loans was going through the roof, and they were saying, hey, do you guys, you know, um, provide mortgage advice because I've just bought a house on the weekend. And we literally get on the phones and speak to bank managers from four or five different banks and try and negotiate a deal. So you're and, a broker anyway, really? We kind of already yeah. were doing it, but yeah. we weren't getting paid for it. Um, because ultimately, so the client didn't want to rate per hour to do that. They could do it themselves. So we looked at the other models, Wizard, Aussie, and everyone like that, and said, well, why don't we do it ourselves? We've got natural, we've got natural accretive coming in straight from our client base and asking. So we set up a mortgage brand. Um, so when someone bought a house, we were able to say, hey, let us take that time off you. We'll actually get paid by the banks, so it's not going to cost you anything, and we'll go and hunt down the best deal that's the right deal and structure it properly for you. Uh, and it kept going like that, Amanda. You know, we... Uh, by late 2000s, you know, every one in every four phone calls we're getting had some sort of legal connotation to it. It had some sort of, oh, I, I need advice on this contract. Um, one of my sales staff has left and taken a few clients. Um, I've just been served a notice, do you know I mean, sort of, um, um, do you know I mean, sort of from a, from a contractual dispute, um, whatever it was. And we were going, great, we're doing the same thing. We're then finding a law firm for them, matching them up, doing discovery and observations. And, and again, it was driven by our clients ago. Let's start our own law firm. And because we had the trusted relationship, I mean, from the accounting and monetary side, it was a natural thing to say, hey, we've actually got a law firm inside the firm. Let us just walk it straight across the corridor, then have to walk around the block, up an elevator, and, uh, and you know, sort of down the street. And it was fast. It was efficient. Discovery and observation was quicker, so it was more efficient to the client. Um, we've got a great head of legal, Pete Fraser, who was, you know what I mean, sort of a partner in a, in a large firm who just wanted to get back to the boutique level. And we built it around that. So we've got commercial law, property law, and industrial relations law, our three major sections. Amazing. And tell us about some of the other businesses that you're involved in. And what I'm curious about is how you oversee all of these divisions within Bell Partners, plus the other businesses that we'll talk about now. How do you keep across it all? So you pick a great entrepreneurial leader, and that means you're picking somebody who doesn't just perform well in their tasks. They're a great leader. They're a great mentor to others. Um, they're actually a great marketer. Um, they're, they're somebody who's really conscientious about what they put out there. So what I fundamentally do is, in, and then have each business group leader, is I'm constantly mentoring and working with those guys on their product offering and their product management. So what actually happens from there is, they become the new leader of it. When they come to me, do you know what I mean, sort of for that, they're not coming to me like, a, you know, sort of, you know, coming to a senior thing to make decisions for them. They've already got to the point where they, for argument's sake, have, have got an issue, they've got three recommendations to it, and they've got a final option to work through. So it's so fast. Um, and most of the time when those guys bring stuff to me, it's stuff that I'm just blessing rather than actually um, coming up and concepting what the answers are. So it actually puts time back in my day by the fact that their leadership models is just as good as some of the other more senior ones in the firm. Mm. Do you ever feel that you are spread too thin? Like, has there ever been a point where you think, I need to pull back and consolidate some business? Interests? Yeah, like every day, right? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Five um, times today already. Yeah, there was a great saying, uh, Mario Andretti, the great speedway race driver in uh, in America, uh, um, he said, if, if you're under control, you're not going fast enough. And, um, you know, for us, yeah, we are high-pitched and, and definitely high-volume, do you know what I mean, sort of on what we do. Um, the spreading two thing is, is something, though, that if you endlessly adjust, you know, ready – um, ready fire aim if you like you'll eventually run into brick walls because um, because if you are spread too thin you end up fighting on too many fronts so there is behind that a bit of strategy of making sure that when we do run a business and then we do put our time and energy into it that we have considered all of those fallback options and a lot of it comes down to the human factor you know great leadership and, and great people we've experienced to be able to handle that um, but in saying that too our learning and our development has come from being spread too thin some of the best things that we've learned in our business and how to operate has come from when we're actually right out there going, oh my God, we are, you know, like how are we going to pull this off? Um, it might be a job for a client. It might be running multiple jobs for multiple clients. How are we going to pull this off? And the lessons that are learned, you know, I mean, from doing that are the things that actually have helped us grow because we've found that we are able to manage in a bandwidth. I usually say that what help, what those sorts of things help us do is move to outcomes, not ours. Fast thinking. Um, great experience, fast choice, like really quick choice. And, you know, as I try and think of my uh, my great rugby coach at, at school um, said to me, I remember when I'm making a bad decision when I was captain of the team, um, while Cranny, who was just a legendary rugby coach at Randwick, said, uh, I said, I think I've made a bad decision. I've elected to run into the wind. And he said, well, it's up to you, young Master Bill, to make it the right decision. And that's the thing. So the speed to making a decision becomes a really important part and then backing the decision and putting enough padding around the decision actually to bring it off. Um, so that that rule of, yeah, we just have to make it the right decision is something we live and breathe by the firm. Mm, which is obviously a key component to high performance. And you've kind of packaged up high performance now as yeah. well with the High Performance Centre. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. And well, so it's got nothing to do with numbers. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing, do you know what I mean? Sort of which... Um, uh, I love it because it, um, yeah, I mean, it's just another, it's a new business that we opened up. Designed for CEOs, leaders, um, even business unit leaders that aren't, you know, owners to get away for a week of headspace stuff. Uh, girls and guys, we're going to run our first girls one um, next uh, next year. And then we hope by the end of the year to run a girls and guys together. But effectively, it came down to all those same tools that we learned probably from our athletes. Um, so the guys who work with us in high performance here, Danny Greens, um, uh, the Tim Horans, uh, Michael Clarks, they're, they're guys that have learned so much in leadership and, and so much, you know what I mean, sort of on a, on a really high-pressure stage uh, to perform really well. Uh, we'll usually take about 14 or 16 guys away. They'll box and they'll train, you know what I mean, sort of for about 60% of it, and 40% is headspace. Now, there's lots of headspace camps that you can go on. You know what I mean? There are hundred percent in that, and you know what I mean, sort of heaps of talks. And there's lots of fitness courses you can go on as well. Um, ours was to find that sort of mix between both, and again to uh, to you know take people away that had common interests. And by the start of the camp, your mentors like your your Danny or your Tim or your Clarky are, are handling a lot of the questions and answers and mentoring. By the end of the camp, the guys are actually handling their own. Um, they're actually mentoring each other. They're, they're bringing things up. They're, they're, they're sort of setting themselves up for whatever it is that's going in that after that week's over and sending them back into their uh, to their stratosphere that they are ready to go again. Like I said, it's a, it's just like I said, it was a neutral, it was a it was a natural fit. Uh, we pulled in a managing director of it, Ian Patterson. Um, he worked with Clark here myself, jumping on the orientation of you know what business needs. 
Um, Pato's an ex-managing director of Channel 9. He's just like a fantastic operator, was big in ad sales. Clarkie, of course, down, I mean, had done so much. Timmy, you know, sort of is, you know, one of the best wallabies of all time. And Danny, you know, four times world boxing champion. All these guys have this incredible intellect on what high performance needs. Some of it you can't read in a book and some of it you can't late, start late for. So they just sort of add that element there of personal experiences, which finds accord with most of the guys that come in. You know, most of the CEOs that come are high performers. Um, they're up against it. They're challenged. They get knocked over. They have to get up. Um, they have to come up with innovation. Competitors jump up and steal some of their staff while they're not looking. You know, those sorts of things go on for everyone. This was like a refresher set, and it was intense. Like It's like a five-day hit out. And you um, you go to bed every night buggered, but uh, you usually come back pretty good. Mm, awesome. So I'm assuming that for the entrepreneurs listening, or um, they could be thought leaders or speakers uh, or business owners, that there's probably a lot that they could learn from you around how to manage your financial future when you have a limited sometimes short-term intense earning window. For example, mm. a lot of sports people uh, earn a lot of money, but it's for a pretty short, intense period of time. Yeah. So what could you share around financial <clears throat> future planning, I guess, when you know that your peak earning... It's finite. Yeah, is finite. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the biggest things I use was next. Um, so most of the guys that we've worked with through their, their great highlights of their careers... Um, uh, start. We start working them for next. They're halfway through their career, and we start talking to them about next. What's going to happen when the lights do go out? You know, sort of when you're not running in, out in front of a hundred thousand people cheering your name and buying your drinks afterwards. Um, so we start a progress of transition um, straight away to the guys. We find their interest points. You know, what they're good at, what their natural tendencies are going to be. For argument's sake, it's well documented. Um, Michael Clark was always interested in venture capital. That was he, he loved it. You know, he loved the concept of it. He loved making fast choices. Uh, he loved the concept of you know high returns for for controllable amounts of risk. So we, you know, Michael was already, you know, sort of introducing himself into business entrepreneurs all the way through, not just working with our firm, but also to, you know, spending time with Brands and spending time with Greg Norm and finding out what worked for them for life after and then planning a pathway for himself. And that's just one of about a thousand stories. So next is the first thing because it actually then fills the void, the gap between that transition. The other part is to invest really wisely. And I, I've said this all the way through, no matter what sort of income you're making, particularly if it's finite. Um, you must save where you can so you can spend where you need to. Um, so the danger comes in guys like that that all of a sudden on millions and millions of dollars a year that suddenly, you know, they're taking all their mates on a private jet to Vegas because they can afford to. When they're 40 years old, they're going, oh, my God, why did I blow all that money away? So it's really important for the guys to actually, you know, have a savings mentality um, and a really disciplined one that's in it. But that's not also to say that you shouldn't also reward yourself at, at moments where you, um, that, that you feel it necessary to and have the freedom and flexibility to reward yourself to feel good about it. I mean, after all, that's what's going to get them out of bed at four in the morning to train, to continue to be good when they're actually feeling some reward for the task that they've achieved. But the most important part, and this is, you know, sort of almost across the whole lot of them, is that they have to have an identification into their future that takes them to 60 or 70 or 80 years old, um, particularly if they're going to fall out of peak performance when they're 34 or 35. They have to see, like, visionise, 
right into the future to see where they're actually going to land, what life looks for them when they're 70 years old, um, right down to their financial comfort, but also to, to their relationships, also to, to you know how they are with their families. It's almost like the whole melting packs. And so what I try and do with a lot of the guys is actually start to say, you know, right now lights are on and it's full on and you just hit another double century in front of 100,000 people screaming your name. Um, what does life look like for you when you're 60 or 70? Um, the one thing I find with a lot of those guys is it's very rare that you find somebody who actually just wants to lie down and relax. Do you know what I mean? For the last 40 or 50 years, the, the engines are still big. They've just got to be directed to different places. Mm. And so if you're an entrepreneur listening to this or a business owner, how far out should you be planning <laughs> yeah, okay, goal-wise? So. Like I know we talk about super and I think in Australia in particular we have a very – non-engaged attitude to super. I know I do, and I know I should be more engaged. No, I don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. No, no, I, no, no. I, I think it's okay. Entrepreneurs should be, you know, like I get super's important. I get putting money away if it's important, but I also get being in control of it now, you know, and using it. So um, for I can say, I have little to no super. Um, I'm in my, I like to say my mid-40s. I'm going to say that right up until the day before I'm 50. <laughs> <laughs> but I have little to no super. Um, my superannuation is what I'm creating every day, um, stuff that I can control and have choice over. Um, not something that I'm waiting for a nest egg when I'm 65. Now, that also, too, has a higher risk component to it, but I'm mentally going, I can't afford to blow it all on a bad deal, so I've got to be responsible and now to my two little kids to make sure that their futures are tied up as well. But I sort of say, yeah, super something to get important about when you actually don't need capital that you can turn into 10, 20, 30 times as much as what the capital's worth today when you your risk adversity starts to come off. Um, so don't beat yourself up, Mandy, for not being too super focused. I feel so much better. I'm so glad we did this interview just so I feel better about how I don't have very much super. Um, you heard it here first, people. Anthony Bell doesn't have very much super, so don't feel bad. So if you had 50000 to invest now, what would you do with it? I'd probably um, put about $40,000 of it back into Bell Partners, something I can control um, and I know about, which is to, we run a, a managed fund, a uh, um, sort of, a, it's, it's like a venture capital fund. And I, I, that's something I've got my hands on the driver's wheel of very carefully. So I back myself on that. But on the other token too, if I just had another 50,000 bucks on top of that, and it was just up to me, um, my place right now is no point putting it in a bank. There's no term deposit return on it. In fact, it's almost negative term deposit return after you pay bank fees on it. So forget that, that's out. The $50,000 I'd probably do is I'd go and find a really young startup operator who had dreams and ambitions, but was just short of capital. Someone I was aligned to, could work with. Uh, it sounds really funny, but somewhere where 50000 bucks can go a long way to turning into a multi-million dollar business. Um, a lot of the guys, you know, pitching, I get pictures every day for startup. And it's amazing how many people come to me that just want a loan for something. And um, I look then into what they're putting up uh, for it. And these incredible, you know, business ideas, but they need multi-layers of capital funding, millions of dollars needed to be injected in at high risk. And that, I mean, to me is sort of against all the beliefs that I have when I started Bell Partners. I had no money. I think it was the fact that I had no money that we ended up surviving and thriving because we had our backs against the wall. So, you know, to me, $50,000 right now can start a great business up. It can be leveraged into some bank lending, which can actually grow that to probably $200,000, Jimmy, to inject into capital to actually start a business, start a product, uh, create something that's definitely uh, differential in that space. And I'd probably be looking for something that can be sold. You know, too many guys, they start businesses, but they don't see the end game. They don't see the end at the start. So my whole set is in the venture capital space is looking at things that probably in a three to five year horizon, there'll be a buyer for it. It's usually going to be a bigger buyer. 
And that means that the equity partners, the founders and everybody can get out or they can be bought out and the business can continue on. Mm. Have you ever invested in something that hasn't worked? I suppose on that front, there's definitely things that haven't worked as well as what I thought they would do. Um, but my view is I said, you're never out till you're out. So what we'll usually do is for whatever reason that we've, we've taken to something and it hasn't quite come off, we'll just stick with it, um, find another way, repackage it, rebadge it. And then I always say, I mean, if you've never taken a loss, if you can get your capital back out of it. Um, my grandfather always used to say, taking a profit is never a loss, no matter what you do. Do you know what I mean on that one? So, yeah, our bigger games and stuff like that, we've played at that haven't really, you know what I mean, yielded the fruit that they have. What's up to us is to see that on its pathway, recut it and find a way where it can at least get your money back out of the thing and, you know, get the break even. Um, so, yeah, on an answer, egotistically, I'd probably say no. I mean on it, but there's been plenty of things that have been looking at monumental losses where it's just a bit of a challenge to the management team. I said, well, let's get a hold of this together. Let's recut it up. Let's rethink it and replay it and now get to the thing to the point where we can at least, you know, make good um, a, a pig's ear, you know what I mean, sort of, or a, a silk purse out of a pig's ear if it comes to that. That's that's the most important part. So, yes, yeah, so I'm not good. At, I'm not good at actually looking at something that failed and just packaging up and calling that a failure. Mm. Um, now, you've recently moved to Noosa just about two years ago. Yeah. How has that changed things? Best. It's it's uh, no accident that the two best years in our firm that we've had in the last 20, the last two, uh, that could be because the management team has actually wants less of so me. When you have smart been there. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely on that. Um, look, I think the tech edge has allowed me to do that. Um, I think the, the ability to communicate in a state, do you know what I mean, sort of in, in a geographic area by technology has really allowed that to take place. You know, the, and it's like planning. I I take off, do you know what I mean, sort of most Monday mornings um, and get back into Sydney office um, Tuesday, Wednesday. I usually hit Melbourne, do you know what I mean, on Thursdays, um, make it back up to news to see the, the family by Thursday night, then knock into, do you know what I mean, sort of the Brisbane office or, or Queensland, anything that's going on up there in Queensland, I'll do on the Friday. So I'm still working pretty much the same hours and the same dedication as I used to. I haven't sort of gone into semi-retirement. But the technology, as I mentioned before, is, is the real interesting part. You know, I was over in London um, doing a, a deal for a client in, in August and Zoom technology, for argument's sake, over there, these guys just don't Zoom, you know, I mean, sort of into city or into country. They Zoom uh, in their own office. Um, so it was a four-story venture capital office I was in, and the guys just Zoom into each other on level two or level four with each other. Where that's going to is the the value of that is where the Australian market is going, and that's allowing entrepreneurs to actually pick where they want to live, you know, being free space. The clear thinking, you know, I mean, of that new area where the where uh, killing the kids are at in full time is also to an added benefit to me. Um, uh, to wake up and, and sort of do some work with some boardies on their strategy without a collar and tie on. Do you know what I mean? Every now and then it's actually quite healthy. It stops cutting off the uh, oxygen to your brain. And, um, well, hey, it works for Richard Branson living on Necker Island, right? Yeah. Um, and like I said, again, I remember when, um, yeah, on that point, you know, he was a big inspirer for, for us to make that move. We, I spoke at the Virgin Ignite conference on Necker uh, in 2011 and then again in 2015. And watching how he operated the entire Virgin Network Jimmy out of there was amazing to me. The thing that was also amazing to me was that he was uncluttered. Like he he wasn't every break in every session. I was like off on, do you know what I mean, sort of on email and um and and you know sort of we had half hour breaks and and I was I was like off bang away. And I was I would often be watching over him in the temple doing absolutely nothing. Do you know what I mean, just hanging out and talking. I go wow that that guy's 
Uh, he leads a very simple life, really, doesn't he? It's really it's, simple. It's complicated, but it's also in terms of the way he lives is quite simple. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be great mates with Dave Baxby, who was his group CEO, and he said, yeah, well, RB is over on the island, uh, completely unstressed. He said, don't worry about it, man. I've got all the stresses for me in Singapore right now for, uh, outsource, for running the emergency business. the stress is, is the new tip. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think he you know, had a great thing too, which I've tried to adopt, is just, you know, he, he believes in his leaders. He really gives them a long leash um, to be able to do that, to be able to run that life he does and it, i think it's it's no accident that virgin's done so well under picking great leaders i remember him saying i said um to him when we we're there you know how come you're not stressed you know sort of i i cannot you know i mean not pick up my phone or an email you know to find out just to make sure nothing's going on that i have to worry about he said he said last night in virgin he said i can tell you now virgin money misplaced about 25 million us in funds around the world it went into the wrong accounts he said close to 600 uh, passengers' bags have gone to the wrong location, and he said at least one jet has had to turn around because it had some sort of maintenance issue. There's big stuff going on in Virgin right now, but he said the moment I lose faith that that can be handled by my management team means I've got the wrong management team. Um, so he actually flips it. I mean, it's sort of it's on its side as to what his selection is of the people that are running it. And um, yeah, when I look at it like that, yeah, I think. Um, uh, I don't believe in reincarnation, but certainly as a business leader, you want to come back as Richard Branson. That's yeah, for sure. for sure. So do you do you honestly believe that having a better lifestyle that you do now has made you a better leader? Yeah, I think so. It gives you just a bit of time out of it. You, know, you can get really emotional when you're in the business. You know, mm. you're there sometimes. And when, when I am in there, I'm in there. Like I'm, you know, sort of a really early rise and early starter and I go right through you know, to late days. But it can make you emotional about it. You don't get a chance to helicopter view even your own place. I've always said this about myself. I'm actually a better advisor to other businesses than I am to myself. And that comes from being so connected M micro. to Micro. Yeah, 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 you are, you know. You, sort of, you, you become uh, very, I mean, sort of when it's your place, I mean, you, you're so, uh, the small things, you know, I mean, do matter, but you actually can dwell on them for over and over again. So the the ability to advise yourself, do you know what I mean, is usually uh, one does it a lot better when they're looking at somebody else's situation because they're not in it. Mm. You know, the, the ramifications of it are not in it. So it gives great, clear space to think your way through it. Um, so, yeah, with ours, it's, it's definitely given the chance to, you know, so get out, think a bit. But also to, the, the funniest thing is not one client is Mr. Beat. Like most of them didn't actually even pick up that I'd moved to Noosa for like a year after I had because telecommunication-wise, zooming in, um, there's guys that were a block away from me in Sydney that I just speak to on the phone anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. So so as long as that continues um, and the service level doesn't drop, then, yeah, like I said, it's been unreal. And the clear thinking, um, like everybody should do it. Mm. So who do you turn to for advice? Obviously, you're mentoring and advising solidly to some really successful people. Um, who mentors and advises you? So first I go to them. Yep. I go to the guys I have a relationship with that I actually serve. Um, when that's the thing. I, I don't think I've mentioned it so far, but the other thing a good accountant remembers is in the service industry. A lot of accountants get a bit jealous of their clients. Their clients do really well and they want to be their clients. So they stop, they stop being good at advisory and they want to go and do their own thing. Uh, they want to become their clients. Um, so for us, the clear part is that we're in the service industry and, and that the luxury that we can't afford is to be outside the lanes in that. So the relationship that I have with some of the really, really high performers is actually valuable because they know me well enough to give me advice back in return. Uh, they know my risk adversity. Uh, they understand my connection with you know what, what success means to me. So they're the best people to know to uh, that know me well enough to give me advice that's specifically you know, tailored to what I need. So, look, I'll go to John McGrath. I mean, he's a great guy. John, unbelievable, like changed real estate in Australia forever. Um, 
um, his modeling, do you know what I mean, went back to like the late 80s and the early 90s and he was just phenomenal, do you know what I mean, sort of on, on that part. He was really coming forefrontal in helping Bell Partners, do you know what I mean, so when I first started in the 90s, think clearly enough to be different, you know, sort of in the accounting profession. So I'll go to John, um, a lot, yeah, unbelievable thinker. Um, I'll go to some of my great athletes um, and talk it through. Clark and I do a lot of, you know, cross-mentoring and stuff like that. And so, you know, sort of in those issues. But when I want to go outside and I want to, you know, go somebody who I haven't got a friendship with or I haven't got that set with, formed like a, a coterie group a few years ago. And actually, again, it was a Richard Branson suggestion to me um, to go and get some elders. Um, so I grabbed a group of guys who had grey hair, who'd been around the block, who'd done some amazing things in, in big businesses. Bob Mansfield's one of them, um, you know, amazing first CEO of McDonald's here in Australia. Also then went on to chairman of the of the, of the total board. I started Optus in Australia when it, when it worked out. Great thinker, guy I have a lot in common with. So he and I have regular sessions and catch-ups, and that's just one of them. Um, I remember we've had Jeff Dixon, do you know what I mean, the great Qantas leader, mm. and he was really strong, like, you know, the... The messages he left me were unbelievable and still continues to leave me with today, but he's on finding your sweet spot. I can remember once saying, oh, man, I'm after growth, 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 growth. And he goes, why? Why? And he said, he said, don't, he said, he said you've got to find that sweet spot where your earnings are about are achieved with the least manageable pain and stress to actually get there rather than just persistent growth, which is going to bring all sorts of problems to you, you know I mean, sort of long-term and stuff like that. So uh, David Coe, another great one. Um, again, unbelievable. Setup Orco was, you know, one of Australia's biggest finance companies. And uh, again, he had much success and he had a bit of failure too. And, and so that meant that he was really, really good in guarding and, um, you know, and helping me pre-see things before they happen as well. So mm. yeah, I like older guys. Um, yeah. you know? Your advisory yeah. committee. Yeah, elders. Yeah, kind of cool. That's a really lovely term. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to finish off talking a little bit about Loyal Foundation, which is your charity arm, um, driven a lot by the Sydney to Hobart initiatives. But also beyond that, you've now raised over $6 million for life saving equipment in hospitals across Australia. That yeah. must be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, so Loyal was set up, and, and it's, it's, it's funny. Um, even on that stat, it's different. Yeah, about $6 million for life-saving kids' medical equipment, a bit over that now. But Loyals also comes in and helps out in that Robin Hood sort of way for, for people who are charities who just need help or groups that just need help. So on top of the $6 million, I think there's about another three and a half or so that we've just held out and given to causes that, you know, just needed someone's help. We we try and find the places where there's a really high degree, if not a 100% degree, of charity dollar finding all its way through. So we partner with Humpty Dumpty for that. I think UMC, one of the great functions yeah. we did in, in Noosa, and that was just such a special night. It kind of has a bit of flair to it because we, we do bring a bit of personality to it. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I think we had the, the three kings of Australian TV up in the Noosa one that you helped us with, Mandy. And yeah. uh, it is just a, they're uplifting nights. They constantly come back to what our cause is. But law is not really always about that, you know, I mean, so that tough edge, you know, sort of shame people into donating and, you know, sort of make these stories that actually, you know, sort of uh, compel by pushing or driving. I've never really been about that. I've just been about an aspirational set that brings people, if they want to donate, they can donate. If they don't want to donate, they're kind of just being there is a, it's a good thing. And funnily enough, we always hit our charitable target on the night. Um, but they're funny, you know, we don't, we, we, you know, we get the great stories, the relationships that Loyal's had, um, with, I think, like I said, the, the three kings was uh, Richard uh, Wilkins, Carl Stefanovic and Larry Emder. Two out of those three guys have sailed to Hobart on the boat um, and they've got stories and they all get on and they're interesting. 
And what that cultivates is a, a sort of a really uplifting feeling in the room. We then message really well that, you know, that, that we need to help buy kids medical equipment because the government can only do so much. Um, and I think that night alone, I think it was 180 grand or something that went yeah, into. Yeah, 180 grand was raised uh, yeah. on the night. And in, in, a pretty, in a pretty small room. Yeah. Have, yeah, which yeah is, there's which, like 120 people there. Yeah. So that tells you that the feeling is really good. And um, yeah, we continue to do that. Um, you know, if I go back into sailing, which is a possibility, I'm, I miss it really much. And that was a, a big shop front window. But now Loyal's got legs of its own. It's, um, it's still a volunteer charity, so no one gets paid in it. And it fundamentally now, do you know what I mean? So it's got over 450 pieces of life-saving equipment in over 100 different hospitals around Australia that have got a loyal badge on it that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't you know, for those initiatives. So it's probably one of my proudest feats, um, starting a charity. It was a really, really good set. Little Charlie, my now, God bless her, she's eight years old now. She was, do you know what I mean, sort of a, a premier baby. And so she was in an ICU and we saw those bits of equipment. The nurses started saying that they needed more equipment than what they had and the equipment was really old. Some of it was like 20 years old. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Like, as you know, Ollie was premier as well. And you just, unless you're in that situation, you just assume that the best available equipment yeah, is, in those, is in those ICU, yeah. um, uh, in those... Uh, intensive care units, but they're not, and they do really, and they, and when we say life-saving equipment, that's not just a throwaway line. line. They no. really do save lives, particularly those little tiny humans. Yeah, and so, and we always say with Lou, I said if it, if you haven't been through it, you know, with you, with Ollie, and myself, with Charlie, and then Thea was the same. Thea was, God, she's. She, she was premature then because she can't be in time for school no matter what happens now, but she was three months <laughs> premature right then. Um, same thing. And I guess the the real compelling part of it, as I say, if you haven't, it hasn't actually happened to you, it will happen to someone around you. You'll be connected to it and you'll be just hoping um, that there's no equipment level shortage right when it's you or a relative or someone else needs it. And that was always the driver, do you mean, for us. And um, yeah, like I said, the, the shop front window was always important. The the saying to Hobart with all those wonderful guys who brought attention to our cause was really important, but the end benefits are just unreal. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, and particularly um, when you get the messaging back from the hospitals, the doctors who just say, thank you, thank God, we've been campaigning for this for years and uh, you guys have just turned up and bought it for us. Mm, amazing. And it's mm. no wonder that you have um, that you were given the Order of Australia Medal, which <laughs> must, must have been must, must have made your mum really proud. Well, either that or went to, there's another Anthony Bell out there running around <laughs> going, where's my medal? No, um, not at all. Yeah, no, it was great. The OAM thing was a, um, it was something that never, you know, like I said, was actually quite shocking to get because you don't actually find out that you're up for it until you get a, you get a letter um, and my, my PA got, uh, rang and it's got the Queen's seal on it and um, um, you know, I was like, oh my God, what's Anthony done wrong now? Um, it's, like I said, it's, it's like a, you know, an order of the court or something is coming in or, uh, and um, yeah, and so you, you find out and so it's. You don't find out you're going to get it. You don't even find out you've been nominated for it. But then when you do get it, I, I can't say, I mean, I suppose it sounds a little bit egotistical, but it's one, like a great feeling that you, you recognise for that. Well, I suppose on the top thing, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for, you know, those first sailing things for Grant Hackett or Danny Green or Phil Kearns or Phil Wall or Larry M to saying, yeah, mate, we're going to go on this adventure with you and we're going to, we're going to try and bring it off. So I think without all that going for it, then it probably wouldn't have got to the level where it got a, um, you know, the, 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 the award would have come. Yeah, but you but you did inspire all of that. <laughs> yeah, so. we, we put a bit of risk out there as well. Don't worry about that. So when my final question, of course, I think that a lot of people are wondering is when is the next Sydney to Hobart campaign? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, so it's it's really, um, 
it, you miss it terribly. It's like retirement. It's, it's well, we've cl- missed it as well. Australia's <laughs> missed it because it's pretty boring without your Larry Emders and your Carl Stefanovic yeah, so, on Loyal. So we, we dropped out. We did 2016 and um, and we won it again and then... Um, uh, Didn't just win it. You smashed it by yeah, four hours. Broke the race smashed record, the record yeah. by four hours. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, and it, the elation started again. Then you always you sell the boat straight afterwards because that's the time when it's worth the most amount of money and you can pay back some of the debt you've incurred on it. But also, too, I sensed that you know, sort of the world was changing a bit there. Um, boats are now you can see in some of the really high performing America's Cup stuff that the boats are actually flying and eventually boats will fly to Hobart. They'll come up on foils and they'll break the twenty four hour record into Hobart. Watch this space, Mandy, because we got a call from a major sponsor only a couple of weeks ago saying that they want us to go again and now back loyal to go into another set. Um it won't be this year. We haven't got time to get a boat together now. It's almost November and, and race, but um I reckon boats could be flying, as I just said, to Hobart in the twenty twenty race and um it certainly got our interest. Oh, you heard it here first, people. Uh, loyal Mark, will it be Loyal <laughs> Mark, Mark 3? Three. Three. Mark 3, yeah. Campaign 2020 has yeah. just been announced on yeah, the Epic it. Podcast. Yeah, it'd be fun. <laughs> okay. Awesome. We might leave it there. Anthony, thank you so much for your time, your insights, your wisdom and your advice today, and we can't wait to see what happens Thank next. you, Manny, and great work with everything you're doing as well. Thank you. How cool was that interview? We could have chatted for hours. It's certainly one of the longest episodes we've had, but I was just absolutely riveted. It's really hard to distill down to three what the uh, the outtakes were for me. There was just so many nuggets of gold. I actually found myself taking notes dur- during the podcast. But here are my top three. The first one, find your tactical edge. It could be an idea, a person or a manoeuvre like a Sydney to Hobart business can sometimes be won or lost in the last 5% of the race. Number two, don't be distracted by your doubters. When Anthony Bell fronted up with a celebrity crew uh, to compete in the Sydney to Hobart, a lot of people would have written him off and probably laughed. Um, But he didn't let that worry him. He focused, he stayed focused on the plan, on the goal and look at what happened. The rest is history. And finally, I learned so much in that interview around inspiring a team and what's, you know, the whole power of creating aspiration within a team that in many respects creates a force that money just can't buy. When you really engage and inspire humans to go the extra mile and they feel a sense of ownership, they are able to push the boundaries on human achievement. Even as someone who knows Anthony and has worked with him a little bit, uh, that chat certainly catapulted him to the top of my business hero list. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Okay, peeps, it is now time for our productivity hack segment with our resident productivity expert, Tina Tower. Hey, Tina. Hello. Hey, this week we are tackling a big subject and a little from a selfish perspective, I'm um, looking forward to this one because it's certainly something that I'm continuing to learn and that is the power of saying no. Can you uh, talk us through just how important it is to learn how to say no in order to yeah. say yes? Yes. Um, well, I think the most the most prominent thing to remember is every time we say yes to something, we're unconsciously saying no to something else. So when all of the opportunities come flowing in as they will, because we're all awesome, every time we say yes to those things, we're filling up our space. And so it means that when another opportunity comes along, 
we're going to have to say no or it's not going to even hit the sides and enter our realm because we've filled it up already. Um, So I think it's super, super important to know your values really well, know what's important to you really well um, so that you can be really conscious about what you're saying yes to and more importantly, what you're saying no to. And I know there's, there's a real shift in people when that happens because when you start business, you've got to say yes to everything, really. It's it's You've got to make a name for yourself. You've got to get your reputation. You've got to get money. You've got to get all these things. And so we get into this habit of being really scrappy and just going, whatever opportunity comes along, I'm going to say yes and I'm going to devour it and I'm going to do really well and get the next one. Um, and that's kind of what you have to do. You know, you can't be too picky at the beginning. You have to say yes to all the things to figure out what you're really good at and, and all of that sort of stuff. But then you'll find yourself where you feel totally run out of time where you're like, oh my gosh, people are pulling me left, right and center and they're asking me everything and they want me all the time and which is a great problem to have. But then you'll you'll kind of run out. And especially if you're in the area where your business is very dependent on you, you need to have white space. Um, mm. And so that's a really hard thing to create. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to, um, I guess, accept as well, it's because we do fall into this trap, particularly in startup mode, that you know we've got to be hustling and, as you mm. say, saying yes to everything and creating this incredible momentum. But what you're saying is that the, you know, being in hustle mode can actually have an opportunity cost. Totally, a hundred percent. Yeah, I actually. I hate the word hustle. I mean, I admire Gary Vee for his business gumption and what he's created, but most of the things he says, I'm like, this is so harmful to so many people. Mm. Um, No hustle, no grind, no. (laughs) It's not what life is about and it's not any fun. Um, So, I mean, definitely we need to work hard, but we also need to work smart. And for most people that are in business, they're in business for the long haul. They want to be doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, And so if you're constantly sprinting and never taking those rests then I mean it leads to one thing which is which is burnout which there's not many people that I know that have reached a certain level of business that have not suffered from that at one point Um, and everyone says it and everyone talks about it and yet still (laughs) people go and do it so maybe it's a rite of passage Um, but most people that I know now that are at like a good level of business have learned that the hard way and now inject a whole lot of white space into their day, into their life, because that's when creativity happens. Like, you know, a lot of people, whenever you go on holidays, or for me, it used to be the Easter long weekend, like when you take four days off and every Easter long weekend, without a doubt, I'd come up with a new business (laughs) Mm. and just be like, oh my gosh, I should never be left to my own devices. Um, But you need that. You need to have your white space in your days. And while it can seem totally counterintuitive, you will get more done by doing less. And that feels really weird when you start doing it. But all of the studies show that if you're working constant like 10, 12 hour days, you're actually functioning. We don't know this at the time because we think we're smashing it, um, but really we're just smashing ourselves because 
your mind is so exhausted that you're operating on a much lower frequency and not going as fast. Whereas when you're doing like six hours and you're taking time and you're meditating and you're going for a walk and you're doing things that you love and you're swimming in the ocean and doing all of that, when you get to your desk, you're so excited and you feel so alive and you get so much done because your brain's ready. And so it's going at a much higher level. And so saying no to different things gives you that space to be able to perform at that higher level. Mm, And that makes total sense. We just actually had on the show um, Anthony Bell, who is um, a very high performer and and runs a number of different businesses. And he um, you know, talked about simplification, which is, I think, a trend that we're seeing with a yes. lot of entrepreneurs. You know, he's moved to Noosa. So um, I think we we are seeing that real trend of entrepreneurs rather than being in the grind. I mean, you and I both used to live in Sydney in that intense uh, environment yeah. um, and have both had a sea change, which I think, yeah. you know, I think we're seeing more and more of that because we don't need to be in that hustle and that grind and that intensity, yeah. um, both from a lifestyle point of view and also from a time management point of view. But Yeah, there's more to life than that. Yeah, absolutely. But how do you, I, I guess something that I struggle with and I know a lot of people do is that feeling of guilt when you yeah. are um, doing something that's not, you know, that you're feeling isn't productive or isn't income generating or isn't momentum driven like meditating or like yoga or going for a swim you have that sort of guilt of I should be doing this and I should be doing that so how do you overcome that I let guilt go a long time ago um so when my kids were really little like two three years old I used to have guilt a lot when I was leaving them and it, it doesn't serve you in any way shape or form um so I kind of let that go in that whole notion um the biggest challenge for me is like I like to operate now on you know not having Monday as the first day and Friday as the last day it's kind of I go more mood dependent so on the on the days that I'm feeling really on is when I'll do a whole lot of creative stuff and all of the things and then if I'm feeling off for a day um then I will simply not work that day um so if i'll just do the bare minimum or meetings that i've got booked in and everything else i'll just chuck out um and the first time that i kind of sat down at lunchtime and watched a movie i was that's when i had that guilt feeling of you know all those thoughts of oh my god you fat lazy slob you're watching a movie at two o'clock on a tuesday daytime television <laughs> I love it. but i mean what's the difference it's just a day of the week and by doing that it meant that you know, I had that rest and I was able to recover and then then come back better. Um, but I think it's really important to know kind of your limitations and, and what you value because a lot of the time we're saying yes to things out of that feeling of obligation um, and not let it, wanting to let people down and going out of our way when really things are making us miserable. So I'll always do a check-in when someone asks something and go, you know, how does this feel? And if it feels good, um, then you go, yes. And if it doesn't, say no because a lot of the time when we say yes to things then we'll be doing them and we'll be like oh my god why am I here why did I even say yes to this and it just doesn't feel right and so you need to recognize that and then put put stricter boundaries in place for yourself so that you've got more time for the things that that light you up and bring you joy so once you do get better at saying no and you've got that as you call it white space in your day in your week in your schedule um, how do you sort of overcome the feeling of, oh, this doesn't, you know, I haven't, I'm not hustling. I don't have momentum. This is just white space. What's supposed to come? Um, so how yeah. do you, how do you yeah. sort of get comfortable it's with that? It's a weird feeling, especially if you're like a reformed workaholic. Um, so for me, that was my default. And so it felt really weird when I stopped. But then you take notice of the results and it's 
delightful. <laughs> so now I look and go, you know, how much money I make compared to the effort, compared to what I did before, like the proof's in the pudding. And so when you take note of that, you go, all right, so the happier I am with life and the more full my life is of really great friends and activities and outdoors and all the things, the better my business actually performs. Mm. Sweet. So it's experimenting to find, you know, you'll prove it to yourself. And for people that are used to being workaholics, you won't believe it until you prove it to yourself. And it's also about finding your uh, your ideal balance as well. I think we've all been guilty of reading books and articles on, you know, striving for balance and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. But everyone has their own, I guess, ideal balance formula, don't they? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure some people would still look at my life now and go, oh, no, she looks like a full workaholic. But to me, it's quite subdued. So you're, you're totally on point. Like it comes back to the same thing with everything is experiment what's right for you and what you can handle and what your propensity is. Because, I mean, we don't want to – a lot of it in terms of, of getting really good at saying no and creating that white space is is to give our bodies a break so that we're not, you know, putting pressure on our adrenal glands the whole time so that we're not like going sky high with our cortisol levels the whole time. Like you've got to find ways to regulate that Um, and different people have a different propensity for how much of that they can actually handle and for a lot of us we think we can handle it but it's just because we've gotten used to pushing through it for such a long time and our bodies are brilliant at being able to push through it until they're not. Mm. Tina thank you for relieving us of anti-hustle guilt today really (laughs) appreciate it Um, and of course you can learn more about Tina's coaching her programs and her new book One Life at tinatower.com we will hear you on the next episode Tina thanks so much thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of the epic podcast I hope that you're feeling inspired to go and do, create or manifest something epic in your life. And if you're feeling inspired, perhaps give this episode an epic share on your favourite socials. I would be epically grateful. I'm Amanda Stevens, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Epic Podcast.